This is a huge moment in time for me, for Reese, who's producing this show. This is the last pre-recorded interview. This is the last interview that was left over from my breakdown or my retreat or whatever you would call it in your own lingo. I, I like calling it a breakdown because I feel like it represents what happened. I broke down. My health broke down. My mental health broke down. And it left these amazing episodes kind of in, well, in Dropbox, but in the ether. And this is the last one. So from here on out, after this episode, we'll be back to real time. This episode is about identity. It's about our stories, our myths, and comparing them with our actual real lives. There are moments that can define someone's life. When we study people in history, we're often looking at such moments, these life-defining moments. And in the modern time, it can be really strange to compare the myth of people to the reality. I'm sure most of us have had a role model whose image has been completely tarnished by new revelations, new information coming out about their character, about how who they were in their everyday lives differed from the myth that we were taught about them. And this is the danger about mythologizing people, that it doesn't often capture who they are. If you're a fan of true crime stories, you've probably been familiar with the story of today's guest, Matthew Hahn, a career criminal, a drug addict, breaks into a garage and steals a safe. And in that safe is what we might call pure evil. There's evidence of child molestation, rape, pedophilic behavior, things that we don't like to think about. And our protagonist, our career criminal and drug addict, has a moral dilemma. Does he turn in the safe, admit to stealing, and go to prison for doing the right thing? Making sure that this monster faces justice? Or does he ignore it and stay safe? Who are you? I start every episode with this question, and in some ways it's a trick question, because there's obviously no correct answer. But every answer given is supremely important. You can ask anyone, hey, who are you? And in their answer that follows, you will learn so much about how they see themselves, so much about what they view as important. Are they their accomplishments, their skills, their profession, their title, their relation to other humans, their intentions? As someone who asks this question a lot, both on and off air, you get a really beautiful and complex and nuanced view of who the person you're talking to is. As conscious beings with the capacity for self-reflection, we get an opportunity to have this amazing relationship with ourselves. We can incorporate our past, our present, our ideas and plans for the future, our ideals, our hopes, our dreams and desires. But it's a little bit more complicated when we're talking about other people. You might point to somebody who just cut you off in traffic and ask the partner in your car, hey, who is that? And I'll go, that's a fucking asshole. <laughs> and it's really easy for us to distill other humans into this snapshot, into the, the one thing they did that you remember, or the one thing they did that you think overrides all the other things they do. But I believe, as we go on the journey of learning how to human, which I am still very much in the middle of and plan to be for the rest of my life, it's about learning how to see past these snapshots and holding on to 
the reality that they are much, much more than that. This episode is about two hours long, and we could have easily split it into two. There's a clear act break almost in the middle, but I wanted to keep it preserved as one. Matthew is so much more than an ex-convict. He's so much more than somebody who rose to the occasion for this heroic act. He's a devout Buddhist. He's a committed husband. He's a union electrician, and he's a dear friend of mine. It's somebody who I've gotten to know way better over the coming months after this interview, which is why I'm so grateful that we recorded it before we were friends. So here is an episode I think you can get a lot out of. I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can go to hellohumans.co and leave a comment on the episode's page. But here is our episode that we're calling Safe With Me. Hey. Hi. Hey, Matt. Hi, Sam. You have listened to a handful of episodes, so I assume you know what's coming first. But I start every episode with a very easy-to-answer question, one that you can make as big or as small of a question as you'd like, and it's, who are you? I knew you were going to ask me this question, and it hasn't become any easier as the longer I've thought about it. I think there's like the relative versus absolute kind of perspective. And I think relatively speaking, I'm a lot of things. And I I think I'm things that I was in the past. And I think I'm things that I am now. And I think I'm things that maybe I hope to be. So that could be, you know, husband or son, or in the past, I've been an addict and I've been a thief. Maybe currently I'm an electrician. Maybe currently I'm a struggling writer. And then I would also be what I hope to be. So maybe a published writer or a successful writer. You know, if you get published, your whole life is immediately better. I'm not convinced that's... That's (laughs) that's how it works. Yep. People tell you the opposite. But if you get published, all your problems go away. Well, it's kind of like I've heard that the best way to screw up your writing is to get an MFA, right? (laughs) At the same time, I, if you were to say, who are you? I'd also say that I, I don't know. I just don't know who I am. The longer I've been alive, the more that's become a mystery. I heard a quote once from, I think it was Maharishi, where he talks about the spiritual path is about becoming less and less. I tend to agree with that, at least identifying with less and less, because I feel that the more I identify, I identify with any, you know, role that I may play or who I think I am, the more suffering, the more trouble I get myself into. I have a Buddhist practice, but you won't hear me say I'm a Buddhist. Yeah. Well, typically Buddhists are the hardest ones to interview because they're like, practicing humility and all this stuff that you want a great story. And they're like, no, I don't buy into my story. (laughs) (laughs) Like I have a story. Yeah. I believe some of my story and I get wrapped up in my story. But at the same time, story's probably not true. At least not uh, objectively. Yeah. So just right off the bat, what is your relationship to identity? Because that is something I think about all the time. Well, I think it's like I just said, I think identity more often than not gets me into trouble. Whether it's my own identity or whether it's other people's identities. Based upon the way I was raised, maybe I have an idea of what a husband is or isn't. And then if I identify with what my my notion of a husband is, then when I fall short of it or I don't meet it, I'll have a tendency to beat myself up over it. I'll have a tendency to maybe engage in self-loathing or behaviors that are harmful to myself. Whereas if I don't identify with that, I mean, I just be who I think I should be, regardless of what um, my identification level is. I think that's the best practice. I used to identify openly as an addict. 
and I've tended towards no longer identifying that as, a, as an addict. It doesn't mean that I haven't been addicted in the past, and it doesn't mean that there aren't new things that I may be addicted to today, but I feel like identifying as an addict pigeonholes me into a place that I don't want to be. So my relationship is tenuous, at least with identification, with identity. Obviously, I'm also a storyteller like you. I love the craft of, of story. And there's parts of my story that I just absolutely love. And they feel like, oh, these are the valiant moments and what makes Sam, Sam. And then, of course, there's parts of the stories that I hate. And then there's the stories that I make up. I've always, yeah, especially when you run into people who practice like non-dualistic beliefs, the story is really examined. I've always been like, well, I, I feel like a big hold onto parts of my story that I, so whenever somebody says like, I don't quite buy into it all, I'm always, I always kind of have to prod around just to see. Well, then that's like big story, right? You're talking almost like grand narrative. And then there's like little story, which also I think just causes like an immense amount of suffering. Like if I'm at work and I'm not enjoying what I'm doing and I'm looking at the clock a lot. It's like, when is break or when is lunch or when is the day over? It's usually because I'm in a story about what I want to do next, what I should be doing. I mean, that's just like a little story. It's only momentary, but in some degree, I'm like weaving a story about what should be happening. And even in that sense, I think it's probably not healthy. But then of course, there's the big narrative ones, which get us into trouble as well. One of the reasons that I found you is a story. Yeah. And I can imagine it's a story that for you, since you're the one that's centered around it, is just kind of constantly retold and retold because it can easily take on mythic proportions, right? Like to me, that's always the, the interesting thing is to read what other people have wrote about you and then in my own mind, build it up even more and then meet the person. And you're always confronted with a human on the other end. Mm -hmm. If we could start a tiny bit before that, I'm curious about who you were, like what were the building blocks that made Matt, the Matt, the criminal, you know, <laughs> like you're often called a career criminal, right? Career criminal. That's always yeah. in the headline. Career criminal does blank. I mean, I don't even know how far back to go with something like this. I mean, I think curiosity is probably something that got the ball rolling. Curiosity to try things that were new, curiosity to, you know, try things out that I was told not to do. So I guess in that sense, it's a little bit of a rebellious streak in me that I I think I've probably had as long as I can remember. So, I mean, we all remember the Just Say No campaign. Well, some of us do. The, kind of the Nancy Reagan era, Just Say No to Drugs, and then getting told as a kid, this must have been third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, somewhere around then, like all the terrible, awful things that will happen to you when or if you try drugs. And you know, there's a part of me in the back of my mind that I heard that, but there's also, well, it can't hurt to just try it once, right? And... So I think the first time I smoked pot was actually, uh, I think it was sixth grade, sixth or seventh grade. So I don't know how old I would have been, maybe 11, something yeah, like 11, that, yeah. 11 or 12. So I tried pot then. And of course, none of those bad things that were described to me happened. And so I immediately started to question the authority that was telling me that these bad things were going to happen. And so I, I did that, you know, a number of times throughout middle school. And then eventually I got, I don't know if I want to say arrested or just got into trouble. When I was in eighth grade, I got picked up by a, a rent-a-cop at a dance for smoking pot and having a bong. And, you know, I'd always been the kid that didn't quite fit in or I didn't think I fit in. That doesn't mean I didn't. I think it's safe to say I just felt like I didn't fit in because I was pretty good at, at sports, but not great. I was like a really smart kid, but I was also kind of too rough around the edges for the nerdy crowd. 
didn't really know. And again, this maybe goes back to identity. I didn't know like who I was supposed to be, what crowd I was supposed to run with. And I remember after coming back from my school suspension, I just got treated differently. Even teachers started treating me like an adult. I had teachers, like a math teacher come up to me. He's like, don't worry about the pot smoking, man. I, I did it all in the 60s and 70s. It's like, this isn't what teachers typically would have said to me previously. Teachers tried to be my friend rather than just my mentor or, or my teacher. And so like, I kind of started to take on this new role and it would play out through uh, a lot of my life, which was like the kind of nerdy smart kid who bucked the trends, did what I wanted, disrespected authority, and almost always did the opposite of what I was told to do. And I fit into that pretty well. So going into high school, that's just, that's the route. That's the path I followed to such an extent that you're told not to do certain, whether it was hallucinogens, whether it was eventually cocaine and eventually methamphetamine. It's like, I have to at least try these once. So I think that's at least the early trajectory for me, like insecurity that led to like an identity of like the smart rebel. Maybe you're telling my exact story. It's just like trippy to hear. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, it, it's always trippy to hear that, though. So like you're telling my exact same story. Yeah. My mom was in recovery. I had, you know, we had dare, but I had all the ideas about what drugs would do to you. Got high for the first time. Nothing bad happened. It was mm-hmm. like, let's see how far this rabbit hole goes. Yeah. And then I ran, I got into uh, trouble, like let's say insignificant trouble a number of times throughout high school. I always got a slap in the wrist and maybe that's, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the hashtag like criming well white, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but you know, like growing up in a a fairly wealthy community, being a white kid, the cops knowing me because it was a small town. I wasn't out in San Jose proper. I was often being either picked up, taken home, parents called rather than carted off to juvenile hall. Mm. I often wonder if I'd actually gotten into bonafide trouble throughout high school, whether I would have gone the path I did, but I, I, I really did not get in real trouble until the very end of high school. And that was well into my meth use. What happened? <laughs> it's kind of a crazy story. Okay. Um, I'm here for it. <laughs> we might have to explain to uh, your listeners what meth monsters are. Okay. Uh, but when you've been up for a, a number of days, and when I say when, I, when you've been up, when you've been doing methamphetamine, you know, you don't sleep, you don't eat. And after a, a number of days, uh, there's auditory hallucinations, there's visual hallucinations, and we just came to call these meth monsters, which I, I suppose is common parlance for them, because I've run into people that were from other parts of the country that were meth addicts that also called them meth monsters. So anyhow, like I kind of had a set of rules for like how to discern what was a meth monster and what was real. And one of them was you would never, um, if you shined a light on a meth monster, it would go away. Mm. If you talked directly to a meth monster, it would never talk back. And meth monsters never move when you look at them. Yeah, I always experience like shadowy figures. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Kind of in the corner of your eye. Right, or like yeah. something far enough away that's in like slight darkness that your eyes can kind of manufacture movement when you're looking at it. Maybe from an angle, but then when you go either walk up to it or look straight at it, it stops moving. And that's usually when mailboxes would transform into a person or vice versa. <laughs> Anyhow... I had those rules, and one night I had I was hanging out in the the driveway of my my mother's house. It was late at night. It was about midnight. A friend of mine thought he saw something in the yard next to me, and I saw it too. So this would have if it was a meth monster, it was a simultaneous corroborative meth monster, but it bonafide looked like somebody was kind of like creeping up to our house, and so. <laughs> We went in the garage, I got a flashlight, or no, he got a flashlight, and 
we got an axe just in case it was like some horse you know, <laughs> flashlight and an axe. And we walked up to the fence, shined a flashlight over it. And there was a dude dressed in black, looked like a ninja with reflective tape on the back of his arms doing, I didn't know this at the time, but what I would think of today as Tai Chi in the night under a willow tree <laughs> in my neighbor's yard. <laughs> this is an actual person. That's the crazy part, all right? So we shined a light on him, and he was still there. We looked at him, and he was still moving, and then I yelled at him, and he growled at me. And I'd never felt that scared in my entire life. And we turned around, booked it into the house, turned the interior lights off, exterior lights on. I'm sure you understand that, right? Oh, yeah. yeah it makes the light reflect off the outside of the windows. And uh, he had a friend come pick him up, and then he called the cops and said, there's something happening on, on my street. Cops had known, and they kind of knew me at that point. Showed up at my house, of course, first place they come. What's going on? You know, we heard something's happening. So I told him. said, well, I thought I saw a ninja. And so I went to jail that night. They thought I was under the influence of methamphetamine. Yeah, you can't use the, the ninja word. Yeah, That's I instant. So they thought I was under the influence of methamphetamine. Here's the irony. I actually wasn't at that time. I had slept the night before. I hadn't gotten high that day. And so I was so not under the influence that I went to juvenile hall and I did the interview that they ended up letting me go because they determined I wasn't under the influence. So when I came home, you know, I'm just like a kid. Like I, I was only in juvenile hall for like four hours, but I felt like I'd survived war or something. You know, like I felt like a, kind of like a badass and so like I'm in my mom's neighborhood, the sun's coming up, I'm smoking a cigarette, I'm barefoot because that's how they, that's how they had arrested me. So I went for a walk in the neighborhood with a cigarette, barefoot, sun coming up and I'm like smiling, you know, like I felt like I conquered something. And next thing you know, all the cops are at my house and they're like, we heard you were walking down the street smiling, Matt. I'm like, is that how it is now? Like someone's walking down the street smiling and the cops get called. They're like, yeah, well, what are you doing? And I'm like... I'm just walking down the street. They're like, are you, are you high, Matt? I'm like, are we going to go through this again? I'm like, you guys already picked me up because you thought I was high. Are you going to take me back in? They went and they made some calls. And that was, they kind of drove away after they realized that what I was telling them was the truth. And that was when I made the decision. I was never going back to school again. I'm like, I'm not going back to high school. I'm done. I'm not meant for this world. This is the way the world is. They don't understand me. That sort of thing, you know? And so that was actually the day I decided to drop out of high school. And I went on a pretty, pretty serious meth run after that. Yeah. I remember when I dropped out of college, you know, cause like I had important things I needed to take care of, but I just, what were those important things? I like, I can't remember that my life was falling apart cause I was also showing up to school, just shit faced and uh -huh. high all the time. And then also on Adderall and then. Adderall became meth and psychosis kicked in. And I basically flunked a whole semester and just decided like, I need to get things together before I go back. Mm -hmm. And it just turned into the, the meth year of my life that just, you know, as you put it, just brought me down to my knees, you know? Absolutely. You know, and we don't have to like get into all the specifics of it, but yeah, I mean, I basically, I was unemployable. I had, I think I had a job at Starbucks for a bit, but you know, once they realize their employees like sleeping in his truck in the parking lot, leaving notes on the door to Starbucks, telling him to wake me up at whatever time, you know, like they didn't really want me around anymore. And so I resorted to stealing and kind of stealing tools, which eventually led to uh, stealing from people's houses, mostly garages and unlocked cars. And so I was arrested at 18 years old in February of 1999 for 
I don't remember how many felonies. I think it was in the realm of 20. It involved like possession of stolen property, second and first degree burglary. And I did eventually go to prison on that case. In California, there's that three strikes law. And this was in 1999, so it was pretty harsh at the time. So when I got that arrest, because of the first-degree burglaries, I picked up uh, what they say is three-plus strikes, which means I had three offenses that were strikeable. And so that meant that if I ever, after getting out of prison, commit a crime again, didn't matter what felony it was, I would be doing a, a life sentence. So yeah, that sentence was five years, eight months, and I got out of prison in August of 2001. So you served three? No, it was actually ended up only being about 20 months total because okay. I got arrested and then I was in jail for like four months, did a drug program in there in order to get my bail lowered. And then I went to like a residential treatment facility, you know, like the 28 day thing and then moved to an SLE and I lived there for the duration of my court case until uh, I was eventually convicted or took the plea bargain and then sentenced. So you come out with the next thing you do could be life in prison, kind of seems like where a normal person would go, whoa, I lucked out. I'm going to turn things around. So what went wrong that that wasn't the last thing? It's a very good question. And I wish I could actually get into my mind and tell you like that I have, I have like a, a reasonable response, but there are none in the world of drug use, like all rationale. All bets are uh, off. All bets are off. All bets are off. You know, I, I was convinced, you know, for a while I did recovery, or at least I made it look like I was doing recovery. I was going to 12-step meetings and I had... A sponsor and I, I did that stuff but really in the back of my mind it was like I need to do this long enough to make you know the drug program happy to make my parole agent happy I need to get off parole but once I get off parole I didn't have any intention of going back to meth or anything like that but I wanted to drink and I wanted to smoke pot of course yeah I mean like a normie 21 years old 22 years old you know like I hadn't even been to bars yet you know so like I want to go to a bar you know all my friends were going to bars so, yeah, I planned on doing that. And so after I got off parole and I was going to college and I was doing really well, I was at the time married to my first wife. Life was pretty good. I drank on the weekends. I smoked some pot. I went to college. I got straight A's. Life was pretty good until it wasn't. So uh, in 2003, my closest friend, childhood friends back since, since second grade, who, by the way, had been diagnosed with schizophrenia when I was in prison the first time, he committed suicide in October of 2003. And this isn't, I tell this not, not for the purpose of blaming his suicide for my relapse, but his suicide was a life event that I was unable to cope with. Perfect reason to use. Like if you have those doubts kind of in the back of your mm -hmm. mind. Absolutely. It's perfect. And sometimes I forget that I'm talking to someone with a similar history. Yeah. That yes, in the back of the mind... I was looking for a good reason yeah. to fuck my life off. But it can't be like something that's not a socially acceptable reason right. to self-destruct. So you ha I had to find a socially acceptable reason to completely obliterate my life. And that served as that reason. And so on one hand, I was unable to cope with it. And on the other hand, it became kind of a manipulative tactic, a way to start getting loaded, you know, start being unemployable, start dropping out of college, like all the things that was that were starting to happen and not have family question it too much because, you know, Matt's, he's going through it right now. Yeah. And they're not mutually exclusive also. Like you could have started because you literally couldn't cope. Yeah. And then just held on to it because it's like, 
this might get out of jail free card. You know? Absolutely. And you know what? That's probably the case. You know, I, they always tell you, don't hang out with the old people, the people you used to hang out with. And I was still seeing the people that I used to hang out with when I was using. And I'd been asked, I don't know how many times, but a number of times to, if I wanted to get high again on meth. And I always said no. But after Pat died, I said yes. You know, you ever like heard, you ever heard the saying, you hang out in the barbershop barber long enough, you're going to get a haircut. Yes. So yeah. <laughs> exactly. No, that was the barbershop. Yeah. And it's kind of like if someone who has a propensity for addiction is asked a hundred times, they might say no 99 times, but it's only one. It only takes one to, to get that ball rolling. And that's all it took for me. So you start smoking meth again. Yeah. We, I think it's fair to assume that we can predict that you, you didn't start smoking meth like a gentleman and things got away from you. What does gentlemanly meth use look like? I don't know, but I always wanted to. <laughs> that was the goal. There are some of them out there, actually. They're the guys that somehow manage to like keep a regular like construction job their entire career. They still sleep at night, they eat meals, and they do meth during the day. I can never figure out how they did that. But I, they I remember like the person who introduced me to meth was you know, semi-successful, held down a job, had responsibilities. What people like think of when they think of a meth user is more often than not somebody who has a lot of symptoms of exposure. So they're not flossing, brushing, showering. They're out in the elements all day. That will fuck you up, you know, especially if you're high on meth. So when you think of like the street meth user compared to the meth user that, you know, isn't a homeless person, it's often hard to tell if the, you know, until they're at the, those very later stages. Well, and if I think if they manage to maintain themselves and they manage yeah. to sleep and eat, a lot of those symptoms or those exterior symptoms aren't going to show. Yeah. Right? And so you can get away with it. That wasn't me, though. Me neither. I, no, that wasn't me. So, yeah, I went back to stealing. I went back to you know, burglarizing houses. Uh, I think I was more sophisticated this time. I had systems for stealing. I was selling the, the stolen property on eBay. So it was no longer, I mean, let me just take this and trade it for dope, which is kind of how it had been the first time I was doing meth. It was now, I need to pay the rent. I need to pay car insurance. I need to do all these things. So I need it's to- a career path. I, <laughs> I was a professional burglar. I mean, I was a power seller on eBay and I was like preparing- <laughs> I was preparing before I was eventually arrested again. I was preparing to attend like a conference here in the Silicon Valley for power sellers to like share tips with other power sellers. And I'm actually glad that didn't happen. That would have been a fun keynote. <laughs> well, my story was that I got all of my like my used property was I basically my story was that I bought it at garage sales and that I I went to storage unit auctions. Like that was my yeah, story. Buy low, sell high. Yes, that was my story. So In fact, really my high. business, my business name, if you want to call that, was Resurrected Junk. Nice. <laughs> I was a little crazy. So there's a night that sets in motion a lot of things. Mm -hmm. The infamous night. Yep. And can you cinematically? <laughs> cinematically. Yeah. Tell us what happened. What were the series of events that make up this first? part of the okay the twist I, I don't know if it's a twist i don't know how you see it in terms of story arc are you going to sell your movie rights your i actually had my movie rights optioned and then the producer who was working with it basically had too much on his plate and let the option expire and didn't have the wherewithal to to try working out at the time being so i'm 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 looking to sign movie option rights again okay either way movie rights aside 
the twist, and it's interesting because it's a twist that we only know is a twist later, right? Because at right. the time, it just seemed like, oh, that's an interesting, crazy event, but things went on as normal afterwards. And so I'd been hanging out with a friend of mine, and I had expressed that I wanted a three-wheeler, you know, like an ATV. And someone he knew, he said, owned a three-wheeler, and that guy owed him a bunch of money because of, I think he was a pot dealer. And so he owed him a couple thousand dollars in outstanding drug debt and said, you should go steal that guy's three per three wheeler. So I went over to this, this house in Los Gatos, which is like kind of a small wealthy community in the, the South Bay area in California. I went over to this house, uh, very nice neighborhood next to a golf course, relatively large house in the back of the property. And then like a cottage on the front of the property. And I went over there and looked for the three-wheeler and didn't find it. I think I stole, on that occasion, I think I stole uh, a plasma cutter and like a sawzall or something. But I didn't find the three-wheeler. I said, well, maybe it's getting repaired, whatever. So I decided to come back. So a couple of nights later, I went back to this house with, I'm not going to say he's my friend, but my meth acquaintance, the guy that I met usually in the middle of the night. We'd hang out. We'd do meth together. We'd Your associate. My associate. My business associate. <laughs> yeah. All right. So I met my business associate and I told him what we were getting ready to do. And we drove back over to this house. I ventured further onto the property, kind of like out towards the back next to the main house. Didn't find anything. And it was around that time that I had like one of these weird feelings. And you know, it probably, it could be like a methy thing, but at the same time, I felt like when I would have a weird, like instantaneous paranoid feeling like that, to me, it meant that maybe there was a sound or something had happened in the distance that I wasn't fully conscious of it happening, but like I nonetheless registered. And so I just got really uneasy and I whispered to the guy, look, we need to get out of here. So mind you, this is the middle of the night. It's about two in the morning. It's dark. And as we're walking out, there's a driveway that's between the cottage at the front of the house and the main house. And everything had been dark on our way in. But on our way out, the door on the back of the cottage that was opened up towards the main house is wide open and the light's on. And so, like, here we are. I've got to walk through this driveway. And like, there's, like, a streak of light across the driveway where we'd come in. Now, any sane person... I'm not one of them, but any sane person would have been like, time to get out of here, right? I still thought it was time to get out of here, but I was still curious enough <laughs> to look in the door. And when I looked into the door, through a laundry room that was right next to the door into a bedroom beyond, there was a safe sitting on the floor. It wasn't actually like me to go in and get it, but I still did that. So I went in, found the safe, called my associate into, into the cottage, and we stole the safe. Threw it in the bed of my truck and drove home. Now, it was still the middle of the night. I lived in a suburban neighborhood. I couldn't open up the safe at that time because, well, I'm not a safe cracker, so it was going to be really loud. Whatever I did, I was going to get like a die grinder and some, I had, you know, one of those four-foot crowbars. I was, I was going to have to, like, mangle this thing. So I knew I couldn't do it then. So I told my, my business partner that I, I wasn't going to do it till about 8 in the morning and that if he wanted to come back when I opened it, he could. And he said, ah, just whatever. Just tell me what's inside of it. So... I opened the safe and I reached in the safe and the first thing that I pulled out was, well, first it was soft, which isn't what I expected. You know, I'd heard things kind of rattling around inside the safe and the first thing I pulled out was really soft and 
you know, pull it out and I realize it's a diaper and it was a heavy diaper. So I thought like, oh, maybe somebody's holding something inside of it, you know, like jewelry, something they don't want breaking for whatever reason they decided to use uh, a diaper to protect it. But when I opened it up, it was in fact just a diaper full of liquid. Like pee? I didn't like test it to see, <laughs> to see if it was but pee. That's the assumption? The assumption is it was a, soil, a standard soiled diaper, a run-of-the-mill soiled diaper. Okay. And I pulled out, memory is difficult with this, but I pulled out two or three more that were soiled. And then I actually pulled out a pack of diapers that was still brand new, like six diapers, kind of like in a small package that came out of the safe as well. And I thought it was weird, but I actually didn't, I didn't think much about it actually. So I kept digging around I found a gun. I found some paperwork. I found it was actually adoption paperwork for whoever owned the safe. I found some photographs and I found a, a memory card and I put that memory card into my computer. And that's probably the moment that we could say, you know, changed my life forever. Because when the, the photographs that were on the memory stick started streaming across my computer screen, they were as thumbnails, you know, so they were teeny. And so when I was looking at them, I initially thought that maybe I was looking at someone's like homemade porn. Back in the day, you probably had to take to like a photo developer, but today with digital cameras, it's probably a little bit more common than it, than it was at one point in time, but that's what I thought I was looking at. And so I clicked on the photograph and the first one wasn't really clear what was happening because it was very close up. Something felt strange about it, but I wasn't entirely sure what that strangeness was. And so I started scrolling through the photographs and it was only after uh, scrolling that I saw that uh, it was it was an adult male in the photographs and it was a child in the photographs and it was it was sexual activity that was happening. There was rape, and there was molestation happening. The man in the photos looked pretty young, maybe around my age at the time, so in his 20s. And uh, the girl looked to be, in, in my view, maybe three years old, though I found out later that she was only about a year and a half. Not every day you run into stuff like this. I mean, I suppose it's more common than we'd like it to be, but I'd never seen anything like it's it in my life. It's out of sight. Huh? It's out of sight. And I'm sure this guy thought this was going to be out of sight, you know, for all of time. So I, I knew I had to do something. I, I knew I had to, to turn the photos in, but at the same time, you know, that was a difficult, uh, it was something different. Basically off the table was me walking into the police department and saying, I've been robbing all these people in the neighborhood but I found this. I felt that was just asking for a third strike, right? That was just asking for a life sentence. So what I decided to do, and incidentally, the guy, my business associate, as we were calling him now, the guy, when I told him and showed him what was in the safe, he wanted absolutely nothing to do with it. I told him that I was going to turn them in. He said, I still don't want anything to do with it. And so I basically just said, look, I'll turn them in. And the reason I keep calling him the guy is because he's remained unnamed to this day. But I said, I'll turn them in. Uh, and I won't ever get you involved in it. So I mailed them in, basically. I put them in a mailbox. I wrote a note on the outside of the envelope that said, you need to get these to the police. I stole them from this address. I don't want anything, obviously, to do with the burglary, but here's where I got them from. Please remove this animal from the streets. And I watched the newspaper. And it was actually my mom who, who saw the article. Now, you probably think it's strange that my mom would let me know what was in a newspaper article, but I told her that I had discovered something at a garage sale that I had turned in anonymously and to watch the newspaper. So she actually discovered it before I did, that he had been arrested for a child molestation and that he was in jail based upon an anonymous tip. 
And then I kept burglarizing. Yeah, why not? Yeah, I mean, nothing has changed. I still have to pay the bills, right? And I say that sarcastically, <laughs> but nothing had changed. I was still getting high. And if I'm being perfectly honest, at this point, stealing wasn't just to pay bills. Stealing was... A high in itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. The The meth stops working its wonder after after a little bit. And the meth was the maintenance, and the, the stealing at that point had become... The primary addiction in a way, at least the addiction that was fueling me, fueling my, my, my needs to feel different. And then I've often been asked like, well, what was it you were feeling when you would steal this stuff? And I, the best description I can give is power. Like there's a sense of power that comes with stealing, a sense of invincibility that comes with it. And that was very, very addictive. I sometimes tell the story that, uh, the first time I'd been arrested was February 18th of 99. And just to demonstrate the power of the addiction of stealing is I always consider that an unlucky day, right? Like February 18th, I got busted. I caught my first case on February 18th. So I remember when February 18th came around, I said, said, I'm not going to go out burglarizing tonight. And I sat there in my house and I smoked meth and I sat there in my house and I said, I'm not going to go out burglarizing tonight, but I still did. I couldn't hold back. I probably held on for an hour or two, and then finally I had to go out. And incidentally, when I did finally get arrested, one of my charges was from February 18th as well. And it was probably difficult for some people to imagine having a drive to steal so bad that you can't stop yourself from doing it. But that's the place I was at at the time. And so I did eventually get arrested about six weeks later, April of 2005. I'd sold something stolen on eBay. It traced back the serial number, and my understanding is that the cops were kind of watching me for a number of weeks, watching my eBay profile, seeing what I was selling so they could kind of build up a bigger case. And then they arrested me in April of April of 2005. So they had your number. Oh yeah, they had me. They didn't necessarily have me stealing, but they certainly had me selling stolen property. And then after the arrest and the search warrant, they also had me possessing stolen property. A lot of it. I I think they had to, I wasn't there because I was still in jail before bailing out, but I think they had to bring in like a flatbed truck to cart it all out. To catalog stuff. (laughs) Yes. I got a pretty extensive Excel spreadsheet with everything that they confiscated from my place that time, that night. And then I went to jail. I was facing a third strike, but that type of thing doesn't really show up in the computer. They don't, when you get arrested, they don't get like a little notify notification that says, by the way, this guy has this on his record, so he's going to be facing a third strike. And so I was just in jail on possession of stolen property charges. So I bailed out right away, $10,000 bail, and then spent the next couple of weeks trying to decide if I was going to run, trying to decide if I was going to essentially turn myself in for what I knew would be a, a third strike, a life sentence, 25 to life. Keep going. Oh, just keep going. Yeah, just... <laughs> Okay. So yeah, I mean, I toyed with, I toyed with the idea of, of running. I had a little bit of money saved up from what I'd been doing. I mean, in retrospect, it probably would not have been enough money to keep me going from for very long, but I toyed with the idea, but I also just realized that I just didn't have it. I didn't have that much fight in me at that point anymore. You're worn down. You know this, man. It's being a dope fiend, being a thief, just being a liar. It's fucking exhausting. I remember when I got exposed for who I was, I got in a, a violent incident that kind of like went wrong and the other person got really badly hurt and his family hired a PI and freak coincidence, the PI knew my mom and the PI kind of 
told my mom, like, your son's going to be going away for a long time. And then so my mom knew. And like once those cards started crumbling, the like life that I had built just started to crumble. And my friends are leaving. My mom's leaving. Everybody's just jumping off the boat. It's pretty obvious where it's going. I remember almost a sense of relief that it was like, because how many lies, how many faces do you have to juggle? How many masks of yourself do you have to juggle? You know? So much work. So much work. There's so much shame. I think in the back of my mind, you know, I knew I probably wasn't going to stop unless I went to jail. You could send me to 28 day rehab. I don't think I was at a, at a point where that was going to work. I'm kind of a crash and burn kind of dope fiend. Damn. I'm a crash and burn kind of sober guy. <laughs> that's, still I how I, that's still how I learn. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I was still scared to death. Yeah. I'd been to prison before, but this sort of trip, prison trip would be very different than the last one. So I didn't get high after April. I didn't get high off meth after April 8th of 2005. That's when uh, I was arrested the first time and then bailed out. But then on April 22nd, 2005, uh, I got high one last time in the morning. I mean, some people may not consider it getting high, but if in sobriety it is getting high, I smoked pot, but it gave me the courage to, to go to court. Not 100% sure I would have showed up if I hadn't gotten high because the fear was pretty, was pretty strong. And I went to court, and I'll never forget because I, I know what you can bring into jail with you, and I know what will get confiscated. I know what will get put on personal property. So I kind of went prepared for this, and I went into the courtroom, and the district attorney said exactly what I expected her to say, which was, Your Honor, Mr. Hahn is facing, I think at that point it was four felonies still, so it was 100 years to life, 25 to life for each one. He's currently out on, I think it was $10,000 bail. He's a significant flight risk, and it's an ongoing investigation. We expect more charges. He needs to be remanded into custody. And so I just put my hands out in front of me because I knew they were going to put handcuffs on him. There wasn't, there wasn't going to be a debate about this. And that's what happened. The, the bailiff or the sheriff came over and put handcuffs on me and set me down in the, in the jury box. And before you get carted off to the jail through the tunnel, the the bailiff kind of does like a check sheet with you of like what you've got. And so it's like, oh, you know, you got a collar shirt, you got pants, you have a belt. I'm like, no. He's like, do you have a wallet? I'm like, no. He's like, do you have any cash? I'm like, yeah, I think $300 cash. Okay. Do you have any jewelry? I'm like, nope. Do you have any keys? I'm like, nope. And he looked at me. He said, did you know? Did you know this was going to happen? I said, yeah, I knew this was going to happen. He's like, why the fuck did you come? I said, I just don't have it in me anymore. You know, if we're going to do program talk, you know, like recovery program talk, like I feel like that was like an actual surrender, but I think it was like a spiritual surrender for me as well. It was this moment of the white flag is going up. I'm done. And that is the last time I got high was that morning, April 22nd, 2005. It's not my sobriety date though, because I got high that day. So it's the next day. What's coming up? Hmm? What's coming up? What's making you emotional about that well it was the end of a lot of pain and it was the beginning of a lot of pain you know it was the end of one type of pain one type of suffering which which we just talked about you know the lying the the hiding the shame and the shame continued let's be honest but i mean i just i suddenly had to feel a whole bunch of stuff i had to i i I think like most of my my using the year and a half or so prior, I hadn't really been dealing with the fact that my best friend was dead. My first wife, she left me shortly thereafter. I was facing life in prison. It did go from 100 years to life to potentially 400 years to life. I was suicidal. It's funny, I fluctuated between like hope that may have actually just been kind of like an ignorant bliss to how serious the situation was to 
realizing how serious the situation was and being just sunk into like just abject, terrible depression. I mean, I said a prayer to myself and I'm not, I'm not a God fearing man by any stretch of the imagination, but I nonetheless said some sort of prayer that was along the lines of like, this is so bad. This hurts so much. Please just put me away for long enough that I don't ever have to do this again. It's like I just wanted it to be a long enough prison sentence that I did not have to do it again. Whatever it took to burn off that karma. Whatever it took. And it only got worse, you know. I would lay in my cell at night and there would be so much shame just kind of revisiting all the people I've harmed. But like the... Are you transferred to prison at this point or still in jail? No, I'm still in the county jail. I'm still facing life in prison. I'm sitting in my cell and just couldn't sleep at night. You know, like I would like try to sleep and I'd wake up strangling myself. I would wake up with my hands around my neck or because of the nature of the way my best friend killed himself, I would wake up drawing like a fake knife across my neck because that's how he killed himself. It's interesting because the type of pain I would feel at the time, I was often like, it seemed to symbolically line up with the way that I temporarily wanted to kill myself. Like if I was doing a bunch of thinking, I wanted to hang myself. If I was in like terrible, like emotional, heartfelt shameful, regretful pain. I wanted this, like, I, I had the urge to like stab myself in the heart. I felt like I was walking around and I've had a couple people who've told me that this, they can identify with this, but like my head, I felt like the skin on my head was, was numb. Like I'd been holding my head in a bucket of ice or something. Like that's what I felt like for a long time. Like that's just how much like rage and self-loathing and pain I was in. Mm. I would tie knots in my sheets, wrap them around my neck and like, just to see if it was going to hurt terribly bad if and when I hung myself. You know, I planned, I was on the second tier in my cell block, so I planned, like, to figure out ways to get extra sheets so that I could, like, tie it to my bunk, and then when they opened my door, I could just run out the door and leap off the tier, and then the sheet would be long enough to snag me from the bunk behind me in my cell, you know? That's what it was like for a year, a year or so. And two things happened simultaneously that really altered that for me. One was I started doing personal inventory work in recovery. I started kind of writing down like all these things that were recycling in my head at night when I was laying there in my bunk, just recycling my life. That was actually something that could be written down and shared with somebody rather than just recycling it. Like I could recycle it and then write it down and recycle it and write it down. And eventually I came up with this like long, really messy inventory of all the things that were bothering me and all the things that I felt shame about and all the things that I wish I could fix. And I shared that with somebody. And it was right around that time that I was also eventually offered a plea bargain. How's that come about? So when I was arrested, the night I was arrested, I had an off-the-record conversation with the police who arrested me. And that, that off-the-record conversation, it's kind of a, there's a little bit of a story with it. But suffice to say that because I'd been on parole in that town, I knew the officers. And so we had an off-the-record conversation as a result, as a result of that. And it was during that time that I told them that I had been the one to give them Robbie Aitken, which is the name of the, the man who was in the photographs. So flash forward 10 months later, I'm in the county jail and I get visited by the district attorney who's prosecuting Robbie Aitken uh, and my lawyer. And essentially what she wanted from me was to establish a chain of possession, a chain of custody of these photographs. So Robbie Aitken had actually reported the burglary I'd commit that night. So when I stole the safe, he called the police. And incidentally, if you want to 
kind of like talk about uh, serendipity or things only happening the way that they could have or these events only happening the way they should have, depending on what your worldview is. What had happened that night is I walked by, we, we walked by the, the cottage. Robbie Aiken lived in the cottage. I think he needed a drink or he needed something. So he went to the main house where his parents lived, left the door open. And so he was in the kitchen of the main house. As we walked by, he heard our voices and then saw us steal the safe and walk out with it. So like literally this would have never happened if I'd smoked another cigarette or smoked less of a cigarette. If I'd hit a stoplight or hadn't hit a stop, whatever, like any temporal change whatsoever. And I'd be doing the rest of my life in prison without a doubt. Can you imagine what he was thinking as he's watching two guys haul away his deepest, darkest secret? I can't imagine it. Holy cow. Um, the story goes is that he, you know, he worked for the, the family of the, the child that he molested. And the story showed, goes that he went to work and the next day and had told them about somebody stealing something from his house. And he'd also was cryptically saying things like, I feel like my life is over. So he knew the gravity of what had happened. So anyhow, like because he'd reported the burglary, there was a record that this had been stolen. And the district attorney was having a difficult time basically proving that the police didn't do it. There was a motion on the table with his defense to have the digital photograph evidence thrown out. And so they needed me. Because it didn't have a proper chain of custody. Because it didn't have a proper chain of custody. And there was no doubt that that it had been acquired illegally. The question really was, is how was it acquired illegally? Who acquired it illegally? And there would be no chance for that, for that motion to, to fly if the person who stole it came forward. And up to that point, everything was off the record, right? This was a difficult proposition for me. My lawyer recommended that I not go on the record uh, saying I stole the safe because my defense was such that I was hoping that I would get to trial. And because I'd never actually been caught stealing anything, that I would only be convicted of possession of stolen property and that a jury and or a judge would have a very hard time giving me a life sentence for uh, such a nonviolent crime. You could crime. say, hey, I'm, I'm just a shady eBay guy. Yes. Right. Yeah. Like, I was hoping, and don't get me wrong, I would do a ton of time, but it wouldn't be a life sentence. I could probably do a decade or two just because of my record. You think so for possession? With the number of charges I had. Oh, know? okay. Yeah. You know, they could probably... Give, they could give me repeat offender stuff. They get five years for re- repeat offense, a year for a prison prior, stack up all all the the charges of possession of stolen property, three years each, run them consecutively. You can get around 20 years for that if they wanted to do me that way. Either way, it wouldn't have been life in prison. Yeah. So that was basically like the defense plan. And if I went on the record and said, yeah, yeah. I stole this safe. Well, you probably would have gotten off for a plea deal, right? Because it's a lot of effort to do... formal trial they probably would just said look we got you with all this crap well you'd think they would have offered me a plea deal already then they wanted to go to trial oh they did okay Eh, you know prosecution tends to invest more effort when the victims are from wealthy communities interesting you don't say i'm just it's a pattern i made oh oh my (laughs) oh my word (laughs) so yes i think that that played a role in it i mean my los gatos yeah pleasantville you know yeah yeah so Long story short, I went through this round of questioning with the district attorney on the record and initially kind of skirted around the question of the safe. Did you, Matt, steal the safe? Yeah. Yeah. I told him what was in the safe. 
I told them about the diapers. I told them about everything inside. But then when it came to the safe itself, I, I stumbled. And she kind of turned the recorder off and just said, look. And then that's when she explained to me that this was a chain of custody issue. And you either do this or you don't. Yeah, it's, just, no it's up to you. Yeah. It's up to you whether you do this or you don't. I and mean, I should point out that there is no deal on the table here. She she actually started the interview by saying, he's like, I can't offer you a deal. There is no deal. This is law and order. I mean, this is not law and order. This isn't an episode. This isn't like CSI. This isn't what you see on TV. I need help convicting this guy. I know you can help me. Whatever you say, is up. it's up to you. And so when I went back on the record, basically she asked, she reworded the question. She said, did anybody other than you ever have possession of that safe or the photographs between the moment it was stolen and the moment it was delivered to the Las Gatas Monte Serino Police Department? And I said, no, I'm the only person who had that. And my fate at that point was kind of said. But the thing that's interesting is you described relief earlier. You know, I think I'd spent that first 10 months like really trying to figure out how to control the situation. Yeah, what are your angles? Like, oh, what defense can I present? Like, you know, I've, I'm lying to my family. Like, I've got to give them the defense because I can't afford to have them, like, get called on the stand. You know, like, so, like, I'm lying. To, I'm, like, in a drug program in the jail. I'm, like, I'm lying to them. So, like, this, the lies that I was hoping to get away from, the lies that were so tiresome, I still had to keep them up because I didn't want a jailhouse informant. I didn't want my parents to know, like... It was, it was still taxing. And so the moment I did that interview, it was like this second letting go. Like there was like that first surrender like in the, in the courtroom that day. And there was like this second surrender, which is like, if I didn't know it already, I know it now. You know, my hands are not on the steering wheel. Like my life is now out of my hands. At least the long-term trajectory of it. Yeah. It's out of my hands. And what ended up happening is that the, uh, the district attorney who did the interview with me went to the local newspaper, the Mercury News, and basically told uh, a reporter that her boss, the district attorney, is trying to give me more time than Robbie Aitkins, and I'm the one who turned him in. So that reporter came in and did an interview with me, kind of like what we're doing right now, maybe a little bit less honest, some because I wasn't quite as, I don't know, self-aware at the time, right? Because I was in the thick of the thick of it also because like I still had to be a little bit careful about what I let out to the media but I I told him enough and he wrote an article and a couple cycles of it Sunday edition AP news picking it up some petitions got signed locally actually some of them generated in the same communities I was stealing from which was remarkable and eventually the district attorney asked us to approach them with the potential of a plea bargain and so I eventually... From, from local pressure, basically. From local pressure. Not out of the kindness of the DA's heart. Not out of the kindness of the DA's heart. Like, you know, like, what, I remember there was one article that, from a purely pragmatic perspective, an editorial that basically said, what is the message you send if you don't reward him for it with some sort of, like, leniency? Like, what is the message you send? I think one would think that if somebody's stealing, you would always want them to turn those photos in, no matter what. But if you don't give him leniency, that's a very strange message to send other people. And like that was kind of like an editorial that came out, I think, the week before I was finally told that I was going to receive a plea bargain. And so I did. I got a plea bargain, and I ended up taking 14 years, four months, 
And that was sometime, I think, in the summer or September of 2006. And I was on the prison bus in November of that year. At this point, we could have broken the episode into two parts. But I really want to keep it in its whole as one continuous episode. So it's long, but you can consider this part the second act. Act two, prison. Prison. It was technically my second time there, but in some ways I think of it as my first time there. What do you mean by that? The first time I went to prison, I wasn't gone for very long. And so I think the easiest way to describe it is by saying that I spent the first half of that prison sentence kind of reminiscing about freedom. And I spent the second half fantasizing about upcoming freedom. I never had to establish myself. I never had to make prison my home. That's probably the best way to put it. You know, I had a lawyer, my first case, that I also had my second case. And he was kind of a father figure for me because when I was, I was very young when I caught my first case. Because I couldn't talk to my family about my case, I could reveal everything, though, to my lawyer. And so he was kind of mentory with me. And he came to visit me early on in my first, or my, excuse me, in my second case and said, look, Matt, I'm going to do everything I can to prevent you from getting a life sentence, but you are going away for a long, long time. I think it might be as much as 10 years, but that's probably, that could be like a conservative estimate. It could be much longer. So what I suggest you do is you consider this your home now and that you consider what it is you want to do with your life because this is your life. Who do you want to become? Because the next phase of your life is going to be here and you can come out of, out of that many different ways. I wonder if how much weight I would have given his words if he hadn't died a week later because I always remember it as like the final words that came from Steve Cowgill, which was like, what do you want to do with your life? I, I really embraced this idea that prison, if I wanted it to be, could be a transformative experience for me. And early on, it was, it was recovery oriented. Like I can do step work. I can work with other people. I can recover from drug addiction. And there's a little superficiality in the sense that like, oh, I could read every book I ever wanted to read. I could be a scholar. I could learn a trade. I always wanted to learn how to weld. I could go to college. Like I, those are important things, but I think they're kind of superficial. I wasn't at the time like thinking about like deep transformation, though I think inevitably that's what happened. It didn't have to happen, but that's what ended up happening for me. It doesn't happen for everybody who goes to prison. And it started with the words from Steve Cowgill. So I went to a prison in Tracy for a reception, which is basically just where they figure out how dangerous you are and what prison they want to send you to. And then I landed at Folsom State Prison for my, as the first prison I would really stay at for any significant period of time. So that would have been, I think, December of 2006, January 2007, somewhere around then. You know, before I talk about like what's good, I guess I should talk a little bit about what's bad. You know, I, as far yeah. as prison goes, you know, we discussed it a little bit earlier, this, the racial politic in prison. And I think we all have a little bit of a, of an understanding of it from movies like American History X or Shot Caller, which came out a couple of years ago, like this idea of like the racial division in prison, but it's true, at least in California prisons. And my understanding is that it's like that in a lot of prisons across America. So I'm a white guy. So when I get to prison, I have to run with the other white guys. I could try to run with another group. 
I could try to associate with them, but that would just make me a target from all the white guys. So you run with your kind in prison. And I know this is hard for people to hear. You know, sometimes when you live out here and you grow up in the Bay Area, to hear something like you run with your kind or you run with who you look like, it's, it feels so backwards and I don't, archaic, right? But that's what it's like in there. You know, and there's general rules, and I won't repeat the way that they were spoken to me because they were spoken with much harsher language than I'm going to use. But I remember the first time I had the rules explained to me by the guy, the white guy who was like the, the leader of my small group of people from Santa Clara County, which is where I came from. He said, and I'm not quoting him, don't mess with no black people, don't mess with no gay people, and don't gamble more than you got. If you, if you remember those three words, you'll be straight. Now, the whole don't mess with no black people thing, that's actually like an all-encompassing rule. So that means you don't live in a cell with them. You don't share a cup with them. You don't share food with them. You don't take, you can get food from them as, all, as long as it's prepackaged, but you can't take opened food or food off of their tray in the chow hall. You can't take a cigarette from them that's been rolled by them because they had to lick it. You can't use their pull-up bars. You can't go through their area on the yard where they have their tables. They have a half of the basketball court. White people and Southern Hispanics have their half on the basketball court. And that might sound strange, but they're there's a, a Northern Hispanic group, there's a Southern Hispanic group, there's the Blacks, there's the Whites, there's a lot of other little groups that they usually just throw all together and they call them the Others. And they're allied in certain ways, and it's the Whites and the Southern Hispanic and the, the Blacks and the Northern Hispanic that ally. And so there's a lot of sharing that goes on there. So that's like the kind of like the don't mess with no Black people thing. That also means don't mess with anybody who's allied with them. So if you happen to be on a yard with Northern uh, Mexicans or Northern Hispanics, you can't share food with them. You can't share space with them because they've shared space or food with black people. Those roots are based in just racism. One could only assume. Yeah. Okay. One could only assume. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the history of racial politics in California prisons. I don't know what it is, but it's certainly experienced as racism. And the thing that's interesting about it is that like, it's very hard to tell who is actually on board with the rules and who actually cares about those rules. You can't exactly take a tally, yeah. Yeah. The only thing you need to know is that there's enough people on the prison yard who will enforce those rules to make it such that it, it, you would put your life in danger to buck them. And I didn't feel like dying. I can't imagine why. I wanted to a year earlier, but I didn't <laughs> want to die anymore. So you follow those rules. Some of those, I mean, there's like, you end up learning lots more rules. Like nobody steals from each other in prison. It's actually remarkable. One time... Someone I knew had been listening to his disc man on the yard when there was a riot. And when there's a riot, everybody gets down, they take everybody off in handcuffs, they put them in their cells, and they're there for however long the lockdown could last. It could be a few days, it could be a few weeks, it could be a few months, right? In the meantime, the races that weren't involved in the riot, they're coming out to yard and they're still doing their thing where everybody else is still in their cell, right? So you could have the blacks at the yard, but the whites are in their cell. So this guy had left his disc man on the table on the yard. And we were on lockdown for like two weeks. And here you are in a prison with like 3,000 quote unquote like criminals or thieves. Lockdown's over, disc man sitting right where he left it. Because the penalty's death. The stakes are high. There was a guy that, named Bones when I was there that got killed for stealing. He worked in a kind of like a reception room. When people would get in trouble, it was him who would pack up and log their personal property for storage. And what he was doing was skimming a CD, a compact disc from people when they would get moved to, they called the hole or ad seg. He would take a CD and they would go sell them to people and they figured it out and they killed him. What a bad, ironic name to have. Bones. Bones. (laughs) 
I think he was good at dominoes. I think that's what it was. Yeah. But, and it's not funny, but it, it's it's one of these things that like a lot of the time in prison, the people that get hurt or the people that get killed, very often it's very avoidable. And I know that sound. it's not like random violence. I'm not saying that there isn't random violence, but generally speaking, like it's somebody who violated one of these kind of internal rules or someone who wants to live by the sword. So like the people that I mentioned that like to enforce prison rules, they tend to find themselves in trouble because they're enforcing rules, right? They're asking people to, to do violence. They're doing violence themselves. And sometimes that comes back to bite you. So there was actually a guy, I think his name was Sweeney. He worked in the welding shop and this is it's tangentially related to me. So he worked in the welding shop and he was the shot caller for the San Diego car, the San Diego white car. There was someone from San Diego who had gotten himself into drug debt, like heroin debt. And basically, long story short, he sent a bunch of kind of kids to go and beat this guy up to try to encourage him to pay his debt. So after that guy got out of the hole from getting beat up, rather than pay his debt, he just got like a, an 18-inch, they call it a bone crusher in prison, but this 18-inch piece of steel. And he went and he just butchered Sweeney on the yard. He didn't go to the guys that beat him up. He went to the, the guy who had called the shot to have him beat up. So that's the kind of stuff that was going on around me as I'm trying to recover. Now, okay, so outside of prison, I'm just human curiosity. So when I was in the city, I was right next to a project. It was frequently you'd have two years of peace and then something would happen between the blacks and the Mexicans. Mexicans were kind of down the street. The blacks were in the project. And then there'd be this crazy cycle that would happen, which is that the Mexicans would do something They'd either shoot at somebody or shoot somebody and then there'd be retaliation and it would last a while because everybody wanted to be the last person. Now in prison, when... Isn't that like Hatfield McCoy? Isn't that like that old book? What was that story we had to read? Oh, those two families? Yeah. It's like a family feud type thing. All of us regular residents were just like, when is this going to end? In prison, when dude man bone crushes Sweeney... Is it over at that point? Well, that's different because that was interracial. So that happened because the guy who was killed, or excuse me, the guy who had the, the heroin debt, he was in debt to Mexican guys. And so the Mexican guys were like, we want our money back. If they went and took out Dave, that would have caused a racial riot, right? So in order to avoid that, they went to Dave's shot caller, Sweeney, and said, you need to handle this or it's going to become a racial problem. So Sweeney does that in order to avoid the racial riot. Because it was a white-on-white crime, it doesn't result in like significant ongoing tension because it was white-on-white. Now, to your point, when it's interracial, intraracial, did I say interracial or inter... You said inter. Okay, what I meant to say then was like intraracial. Okay. So like when it's intraracial, when it's a... When two people engage in two people of the same race engage in violence, then it doesn't typically result in more repercussions down the line. But when it's between different races, then it can. In fact, that's always the fear. Like when I was at Folsom, there was a, a riot between the blacks and the whites. And I think we were locked down for a month or six weeks. My understanding is that one of the black men that had been hurt significantly in the riot was an older guy, like older, maybe in his 60s or something. And there was worry that there would be retaliation because everybody else who'd been involved in the riot had been young. And there was worry that there would be retaliation for the fact that an old man got beat up. So when that lockdown was over and we all, if we had like a little prison TV network, so you get like on your television in your cell, you get the notification, lockdown will be over tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. It's like, that's when people are sharpening their knives. Everybody's like putting like magazine underneath their shirts 
for the walk to chow in the morning because oh for just like an extra layer of stuff for an extra layer extra layer yeah if somebody tries to stab you if you've got magazines or if you can get your hands on a phone book you're in an even better shape but you know if you've got magazines underneath your shirt then it's possible that that might um, deflect or, or stop getting stabbed that particular incident nothing happened when the lockdown was over but you're waiting you're waiting for it to happen wild yeah it's an interesting environment to try to like you know get spiritual yeah let's talk about the spiritual journey though in, in prison because it is not only your i mean it's your sobriety day right prison is your yeah the day after yeah yeah which i think makes for great sobriety by the way you know to kind of be like baptized by fire like my first two years were the most insane catastrophically ugly custody battle and i think it was so such a good foundation for my long-term sobriety it was like it wasn't this joyride it was like some of the toughest time of my life i think i agree with you i know people don't like hearing it sometimes but suffering does have a way if if you have the right lens with it suffering does have a way of almost purifying you and i know we don't like to hear that the spiritual path has to come through suffering, but there's a certain part of me that that thinks that it does. I don't think you go, you don't seek a path without significant suffering. Like, what do you think you need to change if you haven't suffered? What is it you're trying to fix? Like, what what, what questions are getting are arising? You know, like maybe some existential questions and things like that come up for somebody. But I have a hard time, anyways, identifying with somebody who hasn't experienced profound suffering. Similarly, like to your point about like the early sobriety having that much suffering, I think it's hard for me to imagine relapsing. That doesn't mean I can't. But when things come my way today, death of a loved one, stressors, whatever those things are, it's like I try to put that on the scale next to what I've already endured. And it's kind of like, well, if I could endure that, then I know I can endure this. There's an element of like, if you can endure something absolutely terrible, and horrific and stressful in early sobriety, I feel like it sets the stage for you to know that you can endure damn near anything. And so even when it feels like I can't endure something, even when it feels like, oh, I can't let this go on, something's got to change or whatever, like I know that I can get through it. And this isn't about like that, like cliches, like God won't hand you anything more than you can handle. Like this is me just like, it's tried and true. Like I have weathered those storms and I know that I can weather them going forward. Yeah, I, I get suicidal before I even consider relapsing. Like, that's how messy, and I think there's no words to describe how awful it was towards the end. I had nothing. I was going to be homeless. I was going to lose my kid. I couldn't recognize the problem, and I was still miserable. I wasn't sleeping. Like, the whole thing was just like a torturous ride. Like, literally, when bad things have happened, I've gotten, I've had suicidal bouts. I, I don't have like, oh, you know what will solve this? Drugs. <laughs> like. Well, I think I'm the same way. I don't have suicidal bouts, but I have persistent suicidal ideation. What's, what, what do you see the, the difference as? When I think of suicidal ideation, and this is not like a clinical understanding of it, by the way, this is, I'm thinking more of just my brain naturally goes to, well, I guess I could just kill myself whenever anything doesn't go my way. So, and I think it's because of the suicide of my friend Pat, suicide of another family member, then being around suicide so much throughout my time in prison. I mean, people throwing themselves off tears, hanging themselves. This is... Oh, is that common? Oh, it's common. Oh, wow. It's common. People kill themselves in prison. And so I think what happened for me is that being so close to suicide, it made it feel like an option. I'm like, oh, these people have chosen that. People I know, people I care about, people I don't know have, have also done it. But as soon as people I knew 
and cared about had, had commit suicide, it became like an option for me in the sense that it just was never something that I thought could be an option previously. Hmm. And so for that first year and a half that I was fighting the court case, when I said I was suicidal and things like that, what I always told myself was like, if the preliminary hearings don't go well, if it appears as if they found evidence that I actually commit the burglary and that basically it's going to be a slam dunk for a life sentence, I am going to kill myself. And so like killing myself became the coping mechanism that I developed in the first year or so of me being incarcerated. It was like, oh, this is bad, but I could kill myself oh, I could get a life sentence, but I won't actually have to serve it. And so it became a coping mechanism. It became a way to comfort myself when things weren't, when I things didn't feel I have never right. thought of it like that, but that is so dead on. Well, it's a way that I have compassion for myself. It's like a way of like telling myself that I can alleviate the suffering if it gets bad enough. The problem is it became a learned behavior so that when shit was no longer just hitting the fan, when, she, when when my life was not terrible, or at least not as terrible. <laughs> Mildly inconvenienced. <laughs> no, like, no, and it's almost funny. It's almost comical. Like, my grandma could die. And it's like, I got this. I'm like spiritual as fuck, right? But if I got to get up to go to work, I'm like, maybe I should just drive my car off the freeway. Like, this is what my brain does. You yeah. Know? And... It bothered the hell out of me for a really long time. Sometimes, depending on my mood, it still bothers me. But uh, a combination of things like really helped me to like see it in a different light was one, the explanation that it was a coping mechanism, which I actually got from a therapist I saw. It's a brilliant observation. Yeah. Yeah. She called it self-soothing, and that was really helpful. And then my Buddhist teacher, I discussed it with him, and he actually gave a name to it. He called it uh, Vibhava Tanha, which is craving for dissolution. And it's funny because I'd craving for non-existence, which is basically craving for disappearance, craving for the disappearance to have to experience the suffering. And so like in Buddhism, there's like the three types of craving, right? Like craving for like continuance, craving for being, craving for non-being, right? And this is that craving for non-being. It's like, as soon as it had a name, a type of craving, for whatever reason, that was helpful for me too. It's like, oh, this is what minds do. They get attached to things, but they also want to push those things as far away as possible to such an extent that you may just wish that you don't exist anymore. And, you know, I know this actually comes years later. I wasn't looking or figuring any of this out or hearing or learning any of this while I was in prison. This is actually, you know, recent stuff, last, you know, number of years. But when it happens today, and it happens fairly regularly, I, I kind of name it and note it as I do when I'm meditating and I noting the rising and falling of breath or I'm noting unpleasantness or craving for an itch. I note like, ah, the bhavatana, ah, craving to die. Or I can be compassionate with myself. It's like, I get it, Matt. This is painful, but so it'll pass. You've been sober now 15 years. Almost, yeah. Almost 15 years, which means that you've also been on a spiritual path almost 15 years because those two events happen hand in hand. Right. What are the takeaways of your journey of like, okay so just to give people kind of a con context of, of where you're at now you're working a normal job you're becoming a, a union electrician you've congratulations to you and your wife you're now married you ha you've had a long-term marriage right at this point uh years? Be five years this five year. years yeah great stretch good start <laughs> you guys just bought a house together mm -hmm. so 
on the outside, if somebody didn't know you, you'd just be another human at this point, right? You right. show up, you go to work, you, you earn a, a, a living. You're not just sur- surviving, but you're living. On, on your path of becoming the man you've become today, which despite, you know, other things is pretty well adjusted. What are the the things that you learned that you felt like prison was a almost like the the perfect fertile soil for those lessons? Because it's a unique situation. Your control is taken away from you. Mm-hmm. Right? I I went to jail like you, where I was facing a charge that could have led to a lot more time. I think the max was 11 if it had just gone completely out of my hands. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't quite like you. I'm not trying to compare. No, it's fine. But there was this, oh, I've, I've done something and lost my freedom and I have no control over it. So it's, it's an interesting space, right? You, you can't pick up the phone and entertain yourself constantly, right? If you get TV during the lunch break, which the Marin County Jail had, you don't even get to pick the channel. Someone else gets to pick the channel. It's a totally different place to grow and develop than this strange modern landscape that we live in. Well, yeah, I think you named, you know, the first things that came to mind when you asked the question is you named some of them. So, I mean, there are cell phones in there, but it's not like people are sitting around in the yard scrolling through Facebook all day. Right. They tend to be like quick phone calls that they're hiding. They don't want anybody to know about it. So there's definitely the distraction-free environment. Not that you can't distract yourself with anything, but there's, you know, just fewer toys, fewer obligations, regimented structure. I wanted to meditate every day. I meditated every day at four o'clock because I was always, no matter what, in my cell at four (laughs) o'clock. And you know what else? There was a buzzer that went off every day, no matter what. When I was in my cell at 4.30, because it was count time. So I could sit on my floor in my cell, and I could meditate starting at 4 o'clock. I didn't need a timer. The prison, basically alarm, or cops yelling, was my timer. Meditation was over. So, like, there's certain elements of the regimented lifestyle that I think lend themselves to, I don't know, to a practice of some sort. And in this case, we're talking about a meditative practice. But then there's isolation. I'm not around all my friends. I'm not saying that I couldn't find people to become like really, really close friends with, but it's not like I could see them whenever I want. I certainly couldn't call them. The people I was closest to with in there were people I would met, say, at my meditation groups or at a 12-step group or something like that. But I could only see them when we would have to plan it out weird. He'd be like, based upon the rotation of my building, I think I'm going to be able to get to yard on Tuesday night. He's like, what's your rotation look like? And I'm like, eh, I'm not going to get out there Tuesday, but I think get out there Thursday. He's like, okay, I think I'll get out there Thursday too if I skip chow. So like, that's how you see your friend for an hour on the yard is like you try to schedule based upon the way that buildings are released onto the yard, you know? So it's not like I'm just hanging out all the time. I'm not going to the bar. So at the very least, like I'm in my cell every night, no matter what, I'm in my cell by 8.15. I'm up for a few more hours. It's a completely silent cell block because people start getting crazy if you make noise after hours in there, right? So during the day, it's like a madhouse, but nighttime, you can hear a pin drop, get a ton of reading done. Any self-searching you want to do, you've got all the time in the world to do it. Any studying you want to do, you've got all the time in the world to do it. Any writing, you've got all the time in the world. If you have family that will send you books, you can read every single book you've ever wanted to read. And at the time, that's exactly what I did. If there's a subject you want to learn about, if there's something that you think is like important to you, you can learn it. But then again, also not being around family, being separated from the things that caused me pain, being separated from the people who I harmed gave me time to heal which is not necessarily possible when you're on the street. Like 
I think like my ex-wife, when she left me, like I was filled with rage. I knew she was leaving me, but we had made an agreement that she wasn't going to leave me until I left the county jail and got to prison. Some of that had to do with the fact that I just didn't want to deal with two court proceedings simultaneously, right? And the other was that I thought my classification, I would be a lower security level if I was married, right? But then she went ahead and delivered the divorce paperwork. And I think at the time I was reading a couple of books. One was like Jack Cornfield's uh, Path with Heart. And another one was some book on forgiveness. I forget what it was. And I was also simultaneously reading the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And all three of them were in some way recommending separating yourself from the thing that requires forgiveness or resent or the thing that you have resentment against. And simultaneously, like in some instances, praying for that person, which wasn't too keen on that idea. If you're in the, the Jack Cornfield version of it, there, there's, you know, well-wishing for that person, which is similar to praying for that person. She came to visit me the day after she delivered that divorce paperwork. It was a very painful visit, but I ended it by saying, this is the last time you're going to come see me. I don't know if that means you never want to see me again, but this is the last time you're going to come see me until you, I tell you, I'm ready to see you. You know, I remember she got up, she was very angry, she walked away, and then she came back to the window to say some choice words to me. And I don't remember what they were. And I just explained like, I'm in so much pain right now that I need to be separate. I need to be isolated. I can't be near this. And then I, believe it or not, started praying for her. (laughs) You know, even though I didn't believe in prayer. And that loss, was it fear or heartbreak more of what was so emotionally intense? It was both. It was both. So you genuinely loved her? I did. Yeah. In the way that I could love back then. Yeah. And the way that I could love back in, back then. So I was both afraid of being alone and genuinely just crushed. And feeling betrayed, just like lied to. and Naturally. But at the same time, especially in retrospect, it's completely, absolutely understandable. Oh, good for her. I mean, she already, she had already been with me through my first prison term. Yeah. Like, like, here he is. Now, granted, I wasn't getting a life sentence anymore. She knew that. But it's like, I'm going away for a long time. I'm done with this. Oh, I yeah, get it. please. Fuck off, man. And I get it. <laughs> like, I totally get it. And so, like, in retrospect, it wasn't a forgiveness practice per per se, in the sense that, like, she required forgiving. It was me more working with the resentment. Yeah. But the point is, is that I was able to do something that most people in the real world wouldn't be able to do, which is say, like, I'm not going to see you until I'm ready. You know, like, that's not something you could typically do, say, during a divorce proceeding. (laughs) You know, like, maybe especially if someone has kids. But the point is, is I could be isolated from the things that that were extremely painful to me in that way. I wrote a piece, like, I think I wrote it while I was still in prison and it's actually up on my blog, but it's called monastic cell blocks. And I compare prisons to monasteries. And I, I, I was just going to say, it sounds like, yeah, monastic. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's any coincidence that both prisons and monasteries have cells. A prison can be transformed into a monastery only when the prisoner, him or herself alters the lens through which they experience prison. Cause it can also be a place where you just get filled with anger. It's a place where terrible things happen around you. It's a place where you can learn to hate. And I did learn to hate simultaneous to learning to love. These things aren't like necessarily mutually exclusive projects. I remember when I was in the county jail, an old wizened convict guy who'd been in and out of prison his whole life. So you wouldn't necessarily take like life skills advice from him, but you would take advice about prison from him. Right. That sort of guy. Just a dope fiend who'd probably been in and out of prison for 30 years. So someone like you or me, if we'd been in and out of prison for 30 or 40 years and it just weathered that. Right. And I remember he said to me, he's like, Matt, I know you're like hippy dippy. You love people, all that shit. 
He's like, you will learn to hate. Oof. And I said, come on, man, it's not me. I'm not like a hater like that. Now, I interpreted what he was saying to mean you are going to learn to hate in, within the, the, the structure of like the racial politic in prison. So I thought he meant, what I thought he was telling me was that I was going to learn to hate black people. That's what I thought he was basically telling me. And so like I was correct when I said, nah, man, that's not going to happen. But what I did learn to hate, I'll never forget the day it happened, was the realization happened. The most danger I encountered in prison, and the most danger I think, generally speaking, people encounter when they go to prison doesn't actually come from people of different races. It comes from people within their own race. Yeah, because people are constantly, there's a lot of effort to avoid the riot. To avoid the riot, yeah. right? So like when people violate like the racial rules, when people like I described earlier, like owe debt to somebody of a different race, like those matters tend to be handled within the race. And so, like, you might go to prison thinking, like, oh, gosh, all those people who look different me are the, different than me are the people that are going to harm me, when in reality, it's the guy you're eating dinner with, or it's the guy that you're, you know, doing pull-ups and push-ups with. It's the guy who you share a cell with that could potentially be the person to harm you, right? And as I think I alluded to earlier, there's people who enforce the rules, and there's people who just want to follow those rules, right? And it's not always easy to tell who the people who just want to follow the rules are, but it's generally fairly easy to tell who is definitely on board with the, I want to enforce the rule. You know, they usually have swastika tattoos or SS bolts, they're skinheads, things like that, or people who are just like really, really into the whole woodpecker thing. Excuse me, pecker wood thing. Excuse pecker me, wood. sorry, woodpecker. Dude, better close those blinds, man. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, like, they're like, really, you, can, you can tell who those people are, right? Did you have to pick up any tattoos? Just kind of off topic. I got prison tattoos, but I did not get any. No swastikas? Well, you got to have to earn the swastika. Oh, you have to earn the swastika. Yeah, you have oh, to earn the swastika. Right. You got to earn the SS bolts as well. I didn't didn't want to earn those. I had a celly once whose like, life goal was to get a swastika tattooed. He oh. just wanted to put in work for the white race. I and mean, he did go put in work for the white race. White race. And I, was, I felt bad for the guy whose legs he broke, but I was happy he wasn't my celly anymore. Yeah. But what was I saying? Got off, we got off topic. Oh, we <laughs> did. There's a great subreddit, though, called Behold the Master Race, and it's really hilarious. <laughs> you must be, you're on Reddit a bit, aren't you? Oh, yeah, yeah. You are in greater danger of being harmed by people of your own race yeah. inside prison. And there's a certain type that's visually obvious, right? Shaved head, sometimes, you know, you can see the tattoos, right? But sometimes they'll have tattoos on their head. And so I came to, generally speaking, I was bothered by skinheads because they were the ones that were, you know, pushing the harder line when it came to the racial politics. And they were the ones who were gung-ho about, say, uh, a white crip would show up at the prison and that had to be taken care of because they were a race traitor, right? And it would invariably be someone like a skinhead who would want to go take that guy out. Well, what happens? You get a little riot and we're all locked down. So, so often the, the skinheads... And people like them were the ones causing lockdowns, which means I'm not getting the phone call. I'm not getting a visit. Mail's delayed. Chow's in a weird schedule. Not getting a shower every three days. Whatever the heck the little things are. Or just not getting out of your cell. Not going to work. Not going to your meetings. Not going to your meditation group. Like all these things. Like when there's a lockdown and things get screwed up, like that's what happens. So I started to resent these guys, you know? I started to resent them. And I, but I, I resented them and I thought justifiably, right? Like I felt like... Well, they are. They're screwing my life up. They're making it crappy. You know, my family or friend drove up to Folsom to come visit me, and 
you know, because of something they decided to do the morning of the visit, like they drove all the way up here from the Bay Area for nothing because they can't get in now, you know, because I'm on lockdown, you know, screw you guys. And I remember I was sitting on the floor of my cell and it was actually before a visit. And so I told myself, I'm going to meditate until I hear my name called and the, the cell blocks loudspeaker for my visit. So I didn't know it could be half hour, it could be two hours. I was like, I'm just going to make this a sit that the prison again controls for me. And so I remember I sat down, I was meditating and, you know, I felt the presence of somebody at the cell door and I opened my eyes and I looked up and there was a skinhead standing there. It was a guy I knew, I forget what his name was, but I noticed immediately because I I had a pretty solid sit going on there. Like I noticed immediately, I felt the capillaries in my body. I felt the veins and the arteries in my body. I felt them constrict. I felt my blood pressure go up. I felt my heart rate go up. I basically felt hatred, like physiologically. I felt it rise in my body. And I was like, what the hell does this guy want? But I said like, what's up, dude? You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know? I said, what, what's up, dude? He's like, your celly's not here? I'm like, no. I was just wondering if like, I mean, I was going to ask your celly, but he's not here. I mean, I'm hungry. Do you have any food I could have? You have a soup, I think. He wanted a top ramen. And I felt annoyed at the time. I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know. So I gave him a soup. It's worth 20 cents, right? I gave him the soup. And he's like, thanks, bro. Like, I'll get you back. And like deep inside my, in, inside my mind, I'm like, you ain't never going to get me back for this, but that's fine. That's what I said to myself. I said, it's all right, man. Don't worry about it. And he walked away. And then I went back to meditating. And it's like, it just dawned on me that like, I hated him for what he looked like. I didn't actually know the guy at all. Like, I hated him for what he looked like. I hated him because he was symbolically this whole group of people, this person that was causing harm in my life, this person that was causing disruption. But what he wanted from me as an individual was food because he was hungry. And so I started to like look at them differently. Like, am I justified in hating them in the same way that they hate people? Am I justified in picking an entire group of people based upon how they look and deciding that I hate them ahead of time, which really is no different than what they were doing? Am I justified in this? And I started to see that they, now this is not a rule that doesn't, I I guess you could say it's a rule, but it has exceptions. But as a general rule, you know, a lot of them don't have family that comes to visit. A lot of them aren't having money sent to them from family. Hence the reason, like having to borrow soups. A lot of them, they're not like having their family send them books like I did. They're not having their family like help them go to college like I did. They're not getting a lot of love. And so they're looking for that love somewhere else. These are people, many of them who came from foster homes. These are people who were abused. These are people who've been on the streets for a long time. This isn't meant, again, to, this isn't about justifying the belief system. It's kind of an example of that cliche, hurt people, hurt people. It's an example of that. You know, I, I'm not going to say that I didn't continue to resent them for a number of years, but it wasn't until I got to fire camp a number of years later. I mean, for the, your listeners who don't know, a fire camp is basically a low security, minimum security prison, usually out in the middle of nowhere in which the prisoners fight wildfires. I mean, when they're not fighting wildfires, they're like cutting trail. Clearing brush. Clearing brush. Lines, yeah. In the winter, they'll do uh, like sandbagging when there's floods, like any sort of like kind of disaster, really. They're there to do like the heavy lifting. Uh, so I went to fire camp and I, I spent three years in fire camp and I was there with this guy. His name is Mouse and he was a skinhead. And when I got there, I judged him like I did every other skinhead. You know, he's got the swastikas, he's got the SS bolts, he's covered in head to toe with tattoos and this and that. And, you know, by the time I paroled three years later, he was the only person that had been there the entire time I was there. 
And during that period of time, you know, like I actually came to be relatively close to him, close enough that I could actually tell him that I thought a lot of what he believed was horseshit, right? And he didn't do anything about it because we'd gotten to a level of, you know, communication or intimacy or whatever you want to call it that allowed us to talk with each other that way. And he and I were sitting out in the woodworking shop once. And I remember he's like, let me show you something, Matt. And he lifted up like his pant leg or maybe he was wearing shorts at the time. I don't remember, but he showed me a tattoo. He's like, you see this tattoo right here? I'm like, is that what I think it is? It was a jerry bear. And you know what I mean by a jerry bear? Mm-hmm. It's a Grateful Dead tattoo. And he's got all this other, I'll just say garbage tattooed all over him, like the demons and like the swastika and like just all this like white prison tattoo stuff. And I said, were you a hippie? He's like, yeah, man, I used to be a total hippie. I just like dropped acid, this and that. And yeah, I'm like, well, what happened? He's like, oh, I went to YA. Do you know what YA is? California Youth Authority. It's prison for people under 18. Oh, okay. And so if you go to YA, you might be, I think you, it's like 16 to 25. And they sometimes call it gladiator school because that's a lot of testosterone, 16 to 25. A lot of people will like prefer going to prison rather than YA simply because it's so violent. He spent a lot of his youth in YA and then moved when he turned a certain age from YA to prison. And it's like, I felt like his body was like the representative of what his life path had been. It was like he had started out like kind of this hippie, pot-smoking, broken home type kid, got himself into trouble, had no one to take care of him, no one that, at least at that time, that loved him in the way that he needed, and he found it. He found solace, he found friendship, he found protection with these people in prison or in YA at the time. And so like he'd like symbolically and literally like covered up that part of him over the years with all these other tattoos, you know? And I felt like he was like this perfect symbol of all those men that I had learned to hate in there. Like somewhere underneath there, they all have this Jerry Bear tattoo, you know? And again, it's not justification for their belief system. It's not justification for the harm they cause as a result of it. But for me, it opens the door for compassion. It opens the door for me to find understanding, but not necessarily with, with acceptance or allowance of what they do, but understanding. This is sort of where I started to know the conversation wasn't going to go the way I thought it would, is when we were talking over breakfast, and I was kind of trying to to get you to say what I wanted you to say. Which, which was? Which was that the the child molester is just a fucked up person. Because it's just like, this, it's a story I built in my mind. Like, I know survivors, and it's affected me because the trauma from a survivor made being in a relationship really hard because my trauma, her trauma, they just didn't play very well together. I forget what exactly you said, but you said something. Oh, I know. Cause I was kind of like, you were like, Oh, well his, his parole date's coming up. And I was like, well, he's not going to get out. Cause recidivism, recidivism rate is so high. Right. And you're like, well, actually no, that started like I looked into it and that's not actually scientifically based. Yeah, a number of years ago, the I think it was, I can't remember if it was a New York Times editorial that, that basically brought up the the myth of sex offender recidivism. It's just that it's much lower than we culturally believe it to be. And that we use the, you know, kind of like the, you can't change them. They can't be rehabilitated um, and they're not going to reoffend. We kind of use that as a way of justifying our hatred for people. And that's basically what, what what's come up. It doesn't mean that it's not a terrible crime. It doesn't mean that they don't deserve some form of punishment for it. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't go away for as long as they are going away for. 
Although I think a lot of them go away for a lot less time than this guy did because they don't have photographic evidence like he had. Because if the listeners don't know, he ended up getting 30 years in prison. And so I think he's eligible for parole in a couple of years. And incidentally, that's only because he was so young when he was arrested. If he'd been over 25 when he was arrested, his potential parole date would still be seven or eight years away, something like that. But because they've passed new legislation for uh, early release date, earlier release dates for people convicted of crimes under the age of 25, he is now eligible for parole earlier than we all thought. But all that said, like, he is going to be returning to his home, to his family's home, certainly returning to the the county he came from, because I think prison or parole rules are still such that unless you have some weird exception, you are paroling where you came from. So he's returning to the community he came from. Everybody is returning to the community they came from unless they have the death penalty or a life sentence. Everybody. And I would think that it's in our best interest to find ways of making it so they don't hurt people when they come home. I think in the case of sex offenders, that can only come if we enter with it the idea that they can change. Because if we don't first have the idea that people have the capacity to change, even from a person who's caused harm like that, then there's no sense trying. You're not going to try anyhow. And I don't want this happening to more people. We even took it further. Both of us at one point got curious enough to watch the ISIS videos, Uh right? Which you you described as like basically Hollywood produced. It's high definition people dying. Executions. Executions, yeah. Very graphic, very detailed. In really brutal ways. I was talking to a gentleman, Jeremy Courtney, who does a lot of work in the Middle East. He has a nonprofit and he's basically like, we help everyone. And I'm like, how can you possibly help ISIS? You you know, and it's not that direct. He's not like, I'm going to help you, ISIS. But how can you possibly not? If somebody asks for help, they help. Yeah, be concerned. Because I was a child of 9-11. You know, I remember the day when I woke up and my mom was like, you have to come see this. You're not going to school today. You know, Mm -hmm. like we're going to watch the news. Why in your own spiritual practice have you chosen for finding compassion unconditional? Like you just seems like you're trying not to have exemptions to the rule. Where like, I think for me at some point it became okay to hate these people. Like I'm pretty good at not doing that politically, you know, pretty good at not doing that. But there's like certain people, right? Like pedophiles, torturers and murderers. You know, actually, even murderers I can find compassion for unless it's really heinous. Yeah. So at some point, I just decided, oh, well, these guys don't get it. And we had an interesting conversation at breakfast, but I'd love to get your take on it. Why have I decided not to draw a line? Yeah, at least to try to not have that line. Well, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a practice. Yeah. <laughs> if you think that, like, I don't hate people and I don't find reasons to hate people, I do. I do. But my experience is that it it's only hurting one person. And it's not the person I'm thinking about. It's me. I'm the one who suffers from from hatred, which really, I mean, you're in recovery. You've heard the whole, you know, notion about resentments. You've probably heard the adage, you know, like a resentment is drinking poison and hoping the other person dies, you know? Yeah. And I know it's cliche, but it's true. Like me sitting around, you know, hating a group of people, wishing poorly on a group of people, in some capacity, like having Schadenfreude for them, like you know, like experiencing joy when they suffer, isn't hurting anybody but me. 
It's just like when that guy walked up to my cell that day. Like, we are supposed to hate that guy in popular culture. <laughs> I suppose there's a lot of people in America who actually don't hate that guy, right? But like in pop culture, we're supposed to despise that person. But ultimately, like the only harm, the only suffering that happened when he walked up to my cell, it was in me. I'm the only one who felt that right then. He was just hungry. I had a, a teacher once who said like the appropriate response towards every situation, especially when you don't know how to respond, is compassion. And we have to remember that compassion does not mean excusing. Right. Compassion can mean so many things, but basically it's well-wishing and care for that person's suffering. So if we come to believe that someone like someone in ISIS or someone who commits a heinous sex crime, if we come to understand that those crimes are commit as a result of hurting in some way, having been hurt in some way, which invariably is the case, then at the very least we can hope that that person not hurt that way any longer to such an extent that they harm more people. You know, I think we discussed in this conversation, like Joseph Goldstein discussing a compassion or loving kindness practice he had done with people after 9-11, and that people had a really hard time trying to find compassion or loving kindness for the hijackers or people like them, and that they eventually got to a point where they could agree that they could wish those people to no longer feel ill will. And that they could wish that those people no longer feel hatred or enmity towards others. Because it ultimately is that hatred and enmity that causes, that ends up leading to harm towards others. If I can wish that people not feel that sort of suffering, then they will also not harm others. And I think we have to wish that for people. And wishing otherwise, I mean, do we want to wish more harm on people? I mean, is that like a spiritually, is that really even a spiritual practice? Like, and I said this earlier, I mean, your practice, your spiritual practice your practice of compassion, practice of loving kindness, it's not worth its salt if it only, if you can only use it towards people you like. And I feel like, is there, is it a, is it Tolstoy? When he's talking about prisons, he says that you can look at the character of a nation by the condition of its prisons, by the condition of, of the living environment of the people that it considers less than. And you can always really tell who we are as a people and who a person is a person by how they treat the people we're not supposed to treat well. You can certainly tell a lot about a person by how they treat service industry people, Yeah, how they treat people on the road when they have the anonymity of their air-conditioned box on wheels. Yes, it isn't, well, anonymity of the internet, Yeah, Twitter warriors. You can tell a lot. Yeah. Prison, we call them a cell soldier. When they're behind the bars and the door isn't getting unlocked. Oh, and they're like, I'm going to fuck you up. I'm going to fuck you up. <laughs> <laughs> if only these bars were here. Don't make me come out this cell. <laughs> you probably have a book in you, huh? Working on one. Yeah. It's just very difficult to do with my schedule currently, but... Oh, I'm sure there's a million good reasons. Oh, you're right. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I listened to the interview with your mother. <laughs> I'm sure this is... I have no good excuses and plenty of them. Of know? course. Me too. Yeah. I thought I'd, I thought I'd be finished with my book by now. There's, there's like a code to the prison yard, right? That you didn't get to make. Like, if you want to be safe, you have to shack up with these guys right away, even though it's against every belief that you have about race, that you can't share food with black people, so-and-so. Now that you're, you've been out for... Eight years. Eight years. Eight years. Been sober for 15. If, if you were to develop a code for living... Oh, geez. What do, what do you think would... And I, if you, you know, I'm sure we could talk, talk about this once you're writing about it more, but if you were to try and pinpoint what you think are the most important things about living now with studying Buddhism and recovery and 
living in, in prison as your home. What do you think would be the, the most important things that you want to embody while you're here? Well, some of them we've already touched on, I think. I think that the adage that, you know, compassion is always, love is always the appropriate response, even if it's tough love, but it's always the appropriate response. And what I mean by love, tough love is like love with boundaries, you know, kind of like, I forgive you, but you're not allowed in my house anymore yeah. type love. I love you, but I can't let you hurt people anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you mentioned the other one, which is make wherever you are your home. And like I alluded to with my first time in prison, you know, it was this temporary spot. It was just this thing that I had to get through before that next thing I could do. And because of that, I actually wasted 20 months of my life. Like that's 20 months of like development, growth, like all sorts of things that could have happened. Could have written a book. I could have done a bunch (laughs) of things. But instead it was like, how do I kill it? How do I kill it? How do I kill it? And so like I remember I came up with... um, the phrase when I was in prison, I said, killing time is akin to killing oneself because you only have so much. You don't know when it's going to be. You don't know when, you know, like your limited number of breaths will cease, right? But you only have this. And if you don't make this your home, this moment, it's going to fly by and then it's going to be over. And what regrets will you have? You know, that's this is actually similar to the five recollections in Buddhism you know, where they discuss. It's, it can be a contemplation or a meditation where it's, you know, it's my nature to grow ill. I cannot escape growing ill. It is my nature to grow old. I cannot escape growing old. It is my nature to die. I cannot escape death. It is my nature to lose anything and everything that is dear to me. I cannot escape that. My only possessions, the only thing that I actually own is the fruit of my action. That's all I have. I try to live by those regularly as much as I can, as much as I can remember it. But life happens. And I forget. And I just try to re-remember. It's practice, right? It's why we call it practice. It's not like, it doesn't make sense to call it a belief. It's something that I just have to keep reminding myself of over and over again. Just like forgiveness. When we talk about forgiveness, it's a practice as well. Forgiveness is not absolution. It's something that with some people I have to do over and over and over and over again because the resentment pops back up. And I think if there's another thing that I could, that we didn't really talk about, but the history of the, the kind of the trajectory of my sobriety was like all these terrible things happening, you know, you know, prison, seeing bad things happening, lockdowns, lengthy sentences, like just bad things happening in life. I mean, this is the nature of life. Life happens, terrible things happen as well. But whenever I'm experiencing them, they just feel like they're the end of the world. They always feel terrible. They always, I'm experiencing as if they're never going to end. Can I ask you something real quick on that, that note? So have you noticed that from when things were actually really bad and now that things are much better, when a relatively terrible thing happens, they're, they're escalated to like the same stress response? Oh, yeah. Do you feel that way? Oh, absolutely. I feel like my problems have gotten so much smaller and they still occupy the same alarm when they go off. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think, and it kind of goes back to when I was talking about like the suicidal ideation thing, like when a big event happens for me. It's like, I know how to show up. Really, it's the small things that are Mm. the hardest to contend with. Like, I know how to show up for the big stuff. I'm not sure I know how to show up for like, you know, know, a flat tire or somebody like flicking me off on the freeway or the guy, you, the Tesla and the carpool lane or whatever, like the resentment I have towards him, like flying by me. Like, I don't know necessarily how to show up for those things, but something big happens. I'm pretty good at showing up for it, you know, and I don't know why it's some weird brain mechanism 
I'm not exactly sure why that is. But where I was going with the, the, the terrible things, that line of thinking is that in retrospect, when I go back and I look at the terrible things that happened, is they all ended up transforming themselves into something beautiful. And something that really carried me through my years in prison was that all those things that I thought were just unlivable, the things that I didn't think I would survive, that a year later, or two years later, or three years later, in recovery, learning to cope with them, dealing with them as they came, staying sober, like those things transformed themselves into things that I would not regret, that I'm glad happened, that gave me lessons that I do not want to give back. And I try to remember that going forward sometimes when these big things happen. It's like, this is hard. This is terrible. But how has this worked out for you so far? And it always works out. It may not always work out how I want it to or how I plan, but in the long term with the right lens, it always ends up working out basically in the direction of growth. I keep thinking about that guy that said to you, you will learn how to hate. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like tragedy is fertile ground for anything to grow. You know, like hate can grow exponentially. Self-pity can grow exponentially. And so can spiritual growth or so can absolutely self-forgiveness it's like well and that hate that's how i learned to love they're not we think of because we have different words for them we think of them as kind of being completely different but it's more like a spectrum right it's like i had to get pushed off kind of like one end of it to recognize the direction i needed to go like i'm not sure that i would have come to these conclusions about compassion or things like that if i hadn't actually felt hatred for them first i'm not sure i would have learned to like care about that man mouse when I was in prison, I'm not sure I would have learned to care about him the way that I did if I hadn't first hated people like him. It doesn't mean I wouldn't have, but that's the tra trajectory I had to follow. And that's what I meant when I say like hate and love aren't necessarily mutually exclusive projects. You can learn to hate one person and learn to love other people and then realize that what you've been implied over here has to go over here too. I'm sure there's plenty more lessons. I'm having a hard time like coming up with more. Yeah, I put you on the spot. Can't wait for the book. You've been really generous with your time and you probably know what I'm going to say next because it's how I end the conversation every single time. But if I could hand you a phone right now and on the end of it would be you at whatever point you think would be most important to be able to send a message to that person. And now in your case, we can't, we can't change the course of your life. Give yourself some words that would just stay with that younger version of yourself until he becomes the man that you eventually become a good husband from all outward appearances a hard, you know, a hard worker, a good provider, a good teacher and healer and student. What would you want to tell that person? Just like your first question, like, who am I? I thought about this one for a few days. I didn't come up with any good answers ahead of time. It, like you alluded to, one thing I, I, I did kind of kick around in my head is that I don't want anything different. Like, I don't want to alter events. When I get asked, I go to like the local high school, the high school that I dropped out of, and I talk to the kids there once a year. I'm actually going there in two weeks on my 40th birthday, so that'll be cool. They're like, do you have any regrets? And I said, the only regret I have, it's not the path that I followed, it's just the harm that I've caused. If, I could, if there could be a way that I could follow the path I did without the damage to others along the way, then that would be the choice. And so like if I could give advice to myself, I mean, I wouldn't want you to, I mean, first of all, 
I was laughing about this because I was talking about it with my wife earlier. I ain't taking nobody's advice when I'm 16 years old. You know? like, so, like, this is already in. Not, I mean, not, not to, going back and going back in time, like you could call that fantastical, right, or science fictiony. But even more science fictiony is me taking advice at 16. But let's presume um, that I could actually say something to me, and I, I think I would just say, consider the harm you're causing. Yeah. Be mindful of who you're hurting as you do this. Younger Matt, it's me from the future. Fuck off, old man. <laughs> okay, boomer. Yeah, okay, boomer. I'm not a boomer, but I might say something like that if yeah. it was today and I was coming at him. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time. It was great to be with you. Thanks for listening to the How to Human podcast. If you like this episode, you want to see this show continue going, you want us to find new amazing humans and interview them and keep asking the questions that are important about what it means to be human. Share these episodes. Support us at Patreon at www.patreon.com. You can watch new episodes in video format. You can participate in our community events like the book club and write us a review on iTunes. They show people that the show is important it's awesome to read the thoughts of listeners like you and to hear how you like our program. We really hope to earn your support by making episodes that you enjoy. So please take a moment, support us any way you can. And until next time, have a great day. I have never edited out a swear word in my life. Really? No. I don't know. Like, all depends on what your audience is, right? So. I mean, it's all explicit. I personally swear too much. To I swear all the time. Yeah. But they say it's a sign of intelligence. <laughs> at, least that's what exactly. the me- at least that's what the memes tell me. I had to talk to my son about it because he got in trouble at school. And I was basically like, yeah, it's like a, it's a legitimate word. It expresses feelings. But for whatever reason, we've just decided it's not appropriate for young people. To well, it's say. classism. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you ever, you ever heard of Robert Anton Wilson. Uh-uh. He's like an author I was really into for a while. But he always used to discuss the fact that all of our swear words in the English language their history is related to conquest because the Scots and the Irish were considered like the lowest of the low. The way that they swore was they would say, fuck, that's how they, that's actually what, that's what their word for having sex was. So the peasantry and the low class people, the word for their word for sex became a bad word. Just like the word for shit was, that comes from the German for whatever, shite. And then the Cockney British, just the low class British, their word for butt was arse. And so ass became the bad word. It's just like it's more pretentious to say poultry instead of chicken. Hmm. Because the French, in high culture, it was considered better to speak like the French. And so you don't say, I eat a chicken. You say, I eat poultry. You don't eat cow, you eat beef. French word for cow. Oh, that seems like a fascinating wormhole to go down. It is a good wormhole to go down. It's like language and classism. It is really kind of interesting. But yeah, pork, not pig. What else is there? I'm sure there's other stuff.